Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm talking with Anuradha Chakravarti. Anu is an assistant professor of political science at the University of South Carolina, and the author of a fascinating new book called Investigating... Oh, I screwed that up, didn't I? All right. Sorry. Start again. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Anuradha Chakravarti. Anu is an assistant professor of political science and the author of a fascinating new book called Investing in Authoritarian Rule, Punishment and Patronage in Rwanda's Gachacha Courts for Genocide Crimes. The book is a fascinating examination of the motivations and behaviors of ordinary Rwandans as they tried to wrestle with their genocidal past. Products of many months of field research, it is full of firsthand testimony from Anu's interviews. But, and I have to say, as a historian, what I found most thought-provoking about the book was the theoretical framework, both at the micro level and the macro level. Um, it's not something I'm used to doing. It is something I guess I'm used to reading. Uh, Anu does it particularly well. And I learned a lot from it. And so I'm really looking forward to digging into the book with her. Anu, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. So I start with the same way, Anu, and so we'll start with that. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to be a teacher and researcher. Um, I come from a family of teachers. So mm. it's, you know, sort of, I, I came to it almost unthinkingly, like it was the most natural or obvious <laughs> thing for me to do. Um, and I, I think the same goes for my research. I was naturally drawn to sort of human rights questions, um, um, uh, and and the Rwandan case seemed so fascinating, so full of puzzles that had to be explained. Um, you know, here was an authoritarian state uh, trying to punish people uh, on a mass scale, and you had mass participation or a cooperation on a mass scale from the population that was being punished. And, and, and so it presented these fascinating, fascinating questions, uh, uh, you, know, that, that, you know, that were just begging to be answered. Um, and uh, as I was looking through the literature on the courts, the literature on uh, the growing authoritarianism in, in Rwanda, I found that much of the analysis had sort of overlooked the, the nuts and bolts of these mm. courts. Mm-hmm. The confessions, the denunciations, the judging. There was a lot of talk about lay judges, but we sort of knew nothing more other than broad generalities like the judges were peasants, semi-literate or illiterate peasants. Mm. But who were they? What were their socio-economic profiles? What were their political backgrounds? You know, what were their political attitudes and political profiles? What about their memberships, past mm. or present in political parties? We knew next to nothing about... Um, these things. Um, how was it that uh, the number of 
people who were accused uh, rose so dramatically mm. from a quarter million to more than a million. Um, why was it that um, in the beginning, those who were accused of genocide were actually holding out from responding to the incentives? The mm. government held out the offer of plea bargains pretty early in the process. And yet the, the number of people who confessed in those early years was relatively few and far between. And you have a very slowly rising upward curve uh, where the confessions are concerned. Um, so why was that? Why, why did people take so much time to hmm. respond to the, incentive, uh, mm -hmm. to the incentives? One would imagine they would jump at the chance to get a reduced sentence, to, to, to leave prison and go back to their homes, even if it, if it was on temporary parole. Um, so those were the kinds of questions that, that I was looking at. They involved human rights questions, they involved moral, ethical issues. Uh, how, how is it that, what are the prospects for interpersonal reconciliation, for instance? Uh, and while that the book did not address that directly, the, the book um, does touch upon these, these questions in, in quite a mm -hmm. bit of detail. Mm -hmm. um, and what are the implications of these micro-processes and these verdicts for for uh, the political consolidation of the authoritarian regime. Mm. A lot of the existing work had looked at repression, top-down repression, and the assessment was that you know the courts are an imposition on 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 uh, popular preferences, and you know people people are resisting these processes in their different ways, um, and and. But I was I was interested in sort of a, a different take on it. That while there was resistance, there was also there was also cooperation. There was also voluntary participation. There was also there were also responses to a variety of incentives, some direct and obvious, and some tacit and not so obvious. Um, and I was interested in sort of exploring how um, how. The in, how incentives operated mm. within this larger mm -hmm. institutional authoritarian structure. So, so as I said, I'm a historian. Um, why, why did you think, why did you find the disciplinary lens of political science the right way for you to understand those kind of questions? I am trained as a political scientist, mm -hmm. so I am most familiar with political science frameworks. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 I was influenced by game theoretic designs, although that is not one that I articulate mathematically. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is exactly, that, that, is the, that is the theoretical framework that has been used. Um, I, was interest, I was very influenced by recent work on informal institutions mm -hmm. um, uh, that has been emerging in political science. Um, I, my mentors were political sociologists and political economists. Oh, wow. huh. So um, I, I, I trained under Sidney Tarot at Cornell and Nicholas Van de Waal, mm -hmm. um, also at Cornell. And, and, and so my, my approach, while political science is very interdisciplinary, <laughs> so uh -huh. I, I draw freely, I choose to draw freely, and um, large parts of the, the data are ethnographically derived. Mm -hmm. But that was mm -hmm. the only way in which I could excavate uh, uh, people's true feelings <laughs> yeah. about 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 
their own behaviors, their their own understanding of what was going on and why they were participating or why they choose uh, were choosing to hold out. Um, and 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 so the the whole and the entire trials process was such a complicated one. There were so many layers of secrecy and yeah. misinformation and that that without uh, resort to good ethnography, good long-term immersion um, into life around the courts, it would be next to impossible to really know how these things work. Who was related to who, for instance? Um, were the judges local elites? How would one know? Mm. Um, uh, how would one know? Um, and so, so I, I, I draw freely from anthropology, from sociology. Um, um, I, I, I draw freely from um, uh, insights from economics. Um, and, 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 but I'm very much a political scientist. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm, I'm embedded in a political science department. Um, and, and so that seems sort of to me the, the natural way to go. Um, but you will see, um, uh, you know, I, if, you know, there's an audience out there that reads the book, yeah. how interdisciplinary it really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is one of the, the advantages and challenges of, of studying mass violence is that it is, it is so dis- interdisciplinary, which, which simultaneously is a challenge in that you have to acquire this many skills. It's obviously an opportunity. It's a weird kind of challenge, maybe not a weird kind of challenge, but it's an institutional challenge because, at least in my experience, universities don't know where to put people like us. Yes, I, that is absolutely right. Um, and while there's so much talk of interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity, I mm-hmm. think when you're at, at most places, um, I, as far as my knowledge goes, uh, you're hired, you need to have a disciplinary home. Yep. There are few interdisciplinary centers that have any hiring powers. So, you know, at the end of the day, you need that, that foothold within your discipline and you have to establish yourself, you have to publish in disciplinary journals and establish your disciplinary yeah. credentials. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't stop us from doing interdisciplinary work. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it is, it is less, uh, it, it is, these choices are driven by the demands of the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in my case, this was uh, certainly the, the case, uh, you know, with the, in, in this particular project. And um, I, I, I don't see how this work could have been done without borrowing methodologically and theoretically um, from different arenas. So, so maybe we can start there. Could, could you spend a little bit of time talking in very practical terms about how you did your research? How, how did you, uh, did you use an interpreter? Did you, when you say you spent lots of time on the ground, did you choose, how did you choose particular sites? Maybe you could say something about that process. I, you know, when I, uh, um, I had visualized that this, envisioned at the start that this project would take me anything between six and eight months. Mm. Um, That was a severe (laughs) (laughs) So, And and I realized in the first couple of months that I I couldn't put together a survey instrument in Mm. two months. That, you know, it, it took me three to four months of work to design a survey instrument to have it translated into the local language and translated back so you know to, so that you know the 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 there was nothing no mm-hmm. intended meanings lost in communication mm-hmm. rwanda kenya rwanda is actually a very very nuanced language sometimes mm-hmm. meanings can change depending on you know the subtle 
use of this word or that word and 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 so it took me a whole lot of time um i i i i i moved around i i met a whole bunch of different people and it took a lot of intensive work just to get started with the project um it took weeks to get the research permit it took some time to build relationships with uh political elites um those who were in the ministry of justice for example or the police department the rwanda national hmm. police who would give me a permit to to can do the work in in the prisons to hmm. interview prisoners who had confessed and not confessed i needed permits from the ministry of local affairs to actually go and stay with local people uh for an extended period of time um so the process of getting permits the process of designing these questionnaires finding um uh, interpreters i ended up working with a team of four rwandans hmm. um three were hutu and uh one uh, was tutsi mm-hmm. um each of them i i allocated different parts of the work so there were two uh research assistants that i worked with who were just translating kenya rwanda documents into english for me hmm. um church reports ngo reports government reports in kenya rwanda um reports that had just come out in kenya rwanda and would take months before there were any official translations yeah and so you know i i i had to invest my uh, uh field work funds uh into sort of you know that translation work even before official english versions or french versions had had come out um so all of that took a long time then i the other big lesson i learned was you know when you try to do a survey with closed uh, ended questions um you uh, i was barely able to scratch the surface of what hmm. was happening yeah. and uh, my initial plan was to um to undertake uh, these surveys at five different locations and spend a month in each place and a month in each place left me with more questions and puzzles and more details than the survey was able to answer <laughs> i found that you know after a visit to every research site i was updating the quest survey quest instrument mm. i i was including new questions throwing out old ones and that just seemed to me you know i was just getting started and already you know i was at the end of 6 or 7 months in rwanda uh with field work money yeah. quickly running out so um i reapplied for uh funding mm-hmm. and i explained why i needed you know yet another 7 8 months and i decided then that as the next stage to spend much more time in one or two places really immerse myself so i undertake the survey at the same time that i was doing in depth interviews um uh, at the same time that i was actually observing these trials and really sink my teeth into the dynamics of one community that i select for theoretical reasons mm-hmm. um and and that became sort of the primary strategy and 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 that's where you know at the, i in at this particular rural site in southern rwanda that i spent almost 5 months 5 to 6 months um doing all of these things simultaneously um and triangulating between my you know the survey data against the ethnographic observations against the interviews mm-hmm. doing repeat interviews um sometimes not able to do repeat interviews but just 
know, casual conversations, if I happen to encounter this person on the road, hmm. so to divert this person and have a drink and have a chat and make sure I followed up on all of these other questions that are bothering me. Um, that kind of access that I enjoyed because, and, and partial trust. Mm. I always say it's important to remember that even after all of my immersion and embedding and the fact that I tried to live with, you know, I lived in coffee sheds, I lived in, in people's homes, a spare room that they had because their child was, you know, studying somewhere else and mm -hmm. uh, without electricity, without running water, all of that investment in in building trust would only yield me partial, uh, 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 would open up you know, the occasional opportunity to, to really observe uh, people where, uh, you know, in, in their unguarded moments or uh, people would let down their guard only occasionally. Uh, those encounters were rather few and far between. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and given the fact that we were talking, you know, punishments, prison sentences and, 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 and betrayals, friend betraying friend, son betraying father, uh, uh, and, and the whole process dependent on people uh, betraying each other's trust, essentially, mm -hmm. um, in order to advance themselves, whatever that, whatever in whatever way they thought, you know, they were defining their self-interest. People were very, very guarded, and the max I could get was partial trust. Um, so, you know, there were there were a variety of means by which I tried to gather my data, and it was important, sort of triangulate all of that and, and try to see, you know, what broad patterns um, uh, emerged. So, um, and I needed an interpreter at all times. Yeah. Um, I, I realized early on that, you know, in moments when there were unguarded encounters, that a situation was unfolding right in front of me, I happened to be in the thick of it. Uh, and yet the, the actors, the primary actors, were proceeding in an unguarded fashion. I, I, I often instructed my interpreter not to lean over and translate hmm. while, while the situation was unfolding. And, and I, I had absorbed enough of a basic understanding of Kenya Rwanda to get a, 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 a what shall I say, a working intuition yeah. of what was going on, who was saying what and what the arguments were, what the debate was. And I would, I would ask my um, interpreter to fill me in later that evening. Mm -hmm. So most nights were spent writing copious notes by candlelight, <laughs> um, you know, trying to remember and, and, and all the things that I had stored away in my head uh -huh. because I didn't want to make a show of writing everything down or walking, hmm. walking around with a big notebook and pencil. Um, all of that note-taking happened at night and... and you know, preceded by intense engagements with, you know, what did I see? What did you saw? What was that person saying? Mm. And, you know, did I understand correctly? And what do you think was happening in the interview? How can we do this better? And and so on. So it it, it was it was mentally exhausting, emotionally mm -hmm. draining, physically demanding work, uh, and and risky work because at the end of the day. Um, so before I, I left the I, I left the research site, for example, um, a person who who we had become quite friendly with, let me say, mm -hmm. informed me that he had been asked by you know, the day before I was scheduled to arrive, 
and which they knew because you know I had to apply for permits and 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 they knew that I would be arriving. Uh-huh. He had been asked to sort of you know keep a tab on who I was talking to, where I was going, what I was huh. doing, and and so on. And and but I was told that only at the end of my. But I had no knowing who was me and who was not. I had to assume that everyone was watching us. Huh. Everyone was trying to figure out what we were doing, what our interest was, whether we were government spies and, you know, and um, uh, and, and so on. So fieldwork was a very, very uh, interesting process, fraught with difficulties. Um, and we had to make decisions, you know, sort of every day, you know, how we would proceed, how we can not make them you know as you know a mistake or you know something that we thought was a mistake we had made the day before you know how mm. can we do things a little bit better how can we build trusting relationships how can we engage with people in a way that you know they open up one of the things i did was um um i uh, these were not short interviews so you know i and that was one of the things I realized early on, short, quick interviews, like 30 minutes and an hour, I was mm-hmm. not going to get what I wanted. Mm. So these interviews sometimes took three to four hours and I would often break for lunch and then invite the respondent to share a meal. Wow. And um, I, and I, I could see that it mattered a great deal that we were sharing food and it, I, you know, I was just not buying drinks at a bar. Mm-hmm. Which is a big part of local culture to sit around, um, you know, in the evening and and share a few drinks and 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 discuss things. Um, uh, but you know, to actually, you know, to have lunch that was prepared for us to share that food and and then to sort of, you know, not talk business as it were, but just to relax and share a few jokes and 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 laugh and that would give them an opportunity to know more about my life and where mm-hmm. I came from and. You know, I would I would tell them stories about my life as a student in America and, you know, my life growing up in India. And, um, you know, um, and, and I think that helped. It helped to it helped in lowering that guard. It helped them see me. See me. I, I hesitate to say friend, but more it was easier to think of me as a friend. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't really have to rely on. You know the verbal assurances that go into oral consent. You know, don't mm. worry. Um, but then I'm gone. <laughs> uh, I, I'm gone after that interview, and, and so that I stayed and I, I shared to the extent that I could, and you know, I, I lived like them. And I, I was often uh, visited by uh, officials from the mayor's office, and the mayor's office was at the district and. Um, it, at that particular community, it was an hour, hour and a half uh, walk by uh, walk away, huh. and uh, sometimes they would expect um, that I would go. So I often walked there and walked back because I didn't have a car, um, and it, it mm. would be not very ju- judicious to have a car in those uh, in that situation. Um, but um, you know, they they saw me walking back and forth almost to report to the district, much like they would uh, for different reasons. Um, they saw people from the district drop in and ask me questions, check on me as it were. And, and that made me those things, I, 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 I am fairly certain that they, it was easier for me, for them to see me as one of them mm-hmm. rather than, you know, someone who would come from the outside and, you know, that I was answering for what I was doing in the same way that the local population had to answer for a variety mm-hmm. of, uh, certainly helped. 
um, I, I wrote a piece in, in 2012 that was published in the journal Field Methods about you know the what went into uh, developing these partially trusting relationships and mm -hmm. and how they work. So if anyone's interested, that might be something to look at. And Anu helpfully has a, a copy of her CV posted on her website at the university. So that's where I saw that as I was doing the research okay. for this article. So you can find that citation there. You, you frame your argument in this book around the idea of clientelism and patronage. And, and for some of our listeners, those are familiar terms, but for others, perhaps not. So could you maybe briefly talk about what those two terms mean? I, I use them interchangeably. And uh, the argument is that in an authoritarian regime, the, the, the party in power um, is pretty much an unrivaled patron. Um, the RPF has eliminated pretty much every source of opposition in from civil society. Pretty much every viable source of opposition from other political elites, organized other political parties, um, um, and, and so on. Um, there's a long history of assassinations, abuses, repression, draconian laws in place, um, and so on that. Um, that have produced the, you know, the politics of silence and acquiescence, mm. essentially, mm -hmm. where organized uh, groups are concerned. Um, uh, and, and so the, the RPF regime is pretty much an unrivaled patron, uh, mm. and, and the, the incentives to confess, the incentives to denounce, the rewards, as it were, that came from participating in these processes um, could be withdrawn at any time. Mm -hmm. uh, there was certainly no opposition to say that, you know, now, you know, you, these are things that you can't do. So incentives directed at individuals could be withdrawn at any time. Um, and so I, 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 I frame this as the politics of patronage, that, mm -hmm. you know, these selective incentives are targeted at generating individual compliance with government expectations. Right now, you denounce the per this person about you, whom you have information, and the reason you have information is that perhaps you know you are related, you've heard some somebody talking, or you are friends with this person, and and the government pretty much expected that people would undertake, you know, see this almost as a civic obligation, as a moral mm -hmm. obligation to the new Rwanda, prove themselves patriotic Rwandans by betraying, by by undercutting these social ties. Mm. Um, confessions, you know, again, like I said, the guilty plea bargain that you would get reduced sentences if you confess. By the way, you know, part of the, the plea bargain deal is that you have to denounce others who participated with you. Um, and so the more people confess, the more the list of accused began to grow mm -hmm. uh, because the confessees were simply supplying additional names. Um, and that was where the that was where the government had leverage, because if you've confessed and and in in hopes that um, you would be able to benefit from the plea bargain deal, um, and you've denounced all of these people that you were once close to, now you're really vulnerable. Uh, you're really vulnerable, and and the data suggests that a lot of these people who confess were actually holding out because. They didn't trust that uh, they would actually benefit from the the plea bargain deal. 
Mm. They thought that confessions were a way to to induce people to incriminate themselves so the government could identify, you know, their targets for indiscriminate punishment. Um, and so they didn't trust the government. All of that mistrust, hostility, misperception um, resulted in sort of foot dragging and a lot of delays. People were not inclined to jump at the idea that, you know, jump at the, the offer that was being made to them. And, yeah. and yet... With time, they did. And the, uh, my argument becomes, you know, people calculate. They were, you had to look at the procedures in the, the court. In the community, there were more people who were ready to denounce you. And you could not find the same number of people to defend you. Then you would likely be found guilty. If you were found guilty, you would not be able to avail of the plea bargain deal. Mm -hmm. And so depending on how these social processes when the process of mounting a coalition in your defense to counter that counter coalition that was standing, you know, ready to accuse you, depending on how that process went and the likelihood, people's calculations about the likelihood they'd be found guilty and forfeit their chance at the plea bargain deal. If they found themselves in that situation, they confessed, hoping against hope that the government would follow through. Mm. Um, but once they, they confessed, they were really, you know, they had no way. They had no way of knowing whether the government would follow through or not. They were simply hoping for the best. And the leverage there was that, the government's leverage there was that there was always the possibility that they could just yank this deal from under their, their feet. They were, mm -hmm. Because there were no checks and balances. And because of the mistrust um, that... that, that um, ordinary Hutu had of the regime, they, they believed that that was a very real possibility. And so there were actually also cases where, you know, sometimes people were acquitted and then tried again. Mm. The law provided for the possibility that, you know, if you were accused, just one additional accusation of any wrongdoing, you, you would stand, you could possibly forfeit, you know, any benefit that you had received on account of your confession, plus you'd be liable for the you know, the, the punishment for this additional crime. Hmm. And, and, and so, you know, the confessions produced a whole lot of very vulnerable people. Yeah. Um, and, and I trace how those who had confessed were actually um, ended up with publicly very favorable views of the government. Hmm. So although they were privately very um, quite suspicious, uncertain, um, uh, they did not think that the government had the moral authority to rule, but you know they were they would be the same people willing to go out and advocate on behalf of the government. They would go out advocating for confessions um, amongst you know groups that had not confessed and so on. So one of the things, one of the effects of confession, I find is you know the the inclination of confessees to turn into advocates for the government. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and they did that, you know, with their changing attitudes. They did that in terms of various kinds of behaviors. Um, and so I, I, I argue that that was one of the great um, ways in which that the, the, the patronage dynamic worked, that the unrivaled patron extended these incentives. And there was always the very real possibility that they could withdraw these incentives <laughs> at any time. Um, and And people were simply responding in different ways to that possibility. Mm. Um, 
And I, I traced the same dynamic amongst those who had confessed um, and also amongst the judges that people were behaving because they wanted certain benefits while they were very aware that those benefits could be yanked um, if the government suspected them of disloyalty or working against mm -hmm. the government or working to subvert government policy. And so those who jumped at the, the, the opportunity to take advantage of these benefits actually ended up being very loyal supporters mm. um, uh, of government policy. So, so let me ask you about the judges in a minute. Let's go back to the confessees and the, the people who confessed and, and the people who denounced. Right. So, somebody who hasn't read your book might look at this and say, or listen to this and say, "Well, I don't understand this coalition thing. Isn't there some kind of evidentiary basis for prosecution or judgments that go beyond?" Um, one group says this and one group that says that. So what, what are the challenges that these courts are facing in that regard? Right. Um, that was one of the, the, the shortcomings in the existing literature, that there was no analysis of how the formal procedures actually work. So what did mm. the judges' manuals say? What were the procedures that were actually applied in these courts? And um, the way it worked, you know, there was there was really no forensic evidence, no hmm. hard evidence that was used in these courts. And the manuals and the, the training manuals and the law books all encouraged the judges to undertake, you know, verification missions and that they should go to the sites where, hmm. you know, the, the, the crimes had been committed and they should try to, again, triangulate and try to find out to the best of their ability what was going on and what was not that they should not take information at face value. But the truth of the matter is, given the caseload, and these courts were processing, you know, uh, 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 they were coming up with one verdict every couple of weeks. Um, and, and the speed at which, so, and, and, and the government was very clear that, you know, they wanted these cases processed quickly. And, and, and so given the caseload, more than one million individuals, mm -hmm. uh, tried in between you know, the trials act between 2002 2005 was the pre-trial process where the dossiers were compiled on the accused and you know the various lists were compiled uh, lists of property that was damaged uh, and so on but the trials really began in 2005 and the whole process wrapped up by you know, it was drawing to a close by 2008, 2009, and the last courts finished their work in 2012. So you can imagine you know, a million cases yeah. through these courts in, 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 in a, a very short period of time. So there was no real possibility that the judges would actually go to these sites. And mm. um, sometimes there was, you know, other than time pressures and, you know, caseload, there were issues like... Um, you know, there was just no, no, uh, there were no, uh, no infrastructure available. So, even official monitors, um, uh, they were responsible. One person could be responsible for overseeing anywhere between six and thirty courts, and um, obviously, this person could not be everywhere on mm -hmm. the same day. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, sometimes, um, these official monitors. Um, said that there was simply no money to pay for fuel. They were assigned a motorcycle uh, to cover very long distances, um, sometimes very, you know, you know, the, the mountainous terrain and, and dirt tracks. And, you know, it was not the easiest thing to move from one place to the other. And so um, there was very, there was little, there was not enough, let me say, by way of 
supervision, by way of monitoring these trials as they actually went about their business. In, a, in many cases, these uh, monitors, these official monitors, collected these reports from judges after the day's events were over. So mm -hmm. they, would, they would visit these areas maybe a day after they had held uh, their proceedings. And, you know, the judges by then had completed some paperwork which they handed over. And so official reports were compiled based on the data collected in this fashion. So the reality was that given the number of people who were accused and the, the, the speed with which genocide happened, you know, there was no one filming these things. Mm -hmm. There were no reports on the activities of each one of these, you know, more than one million people. And so really it ended up being uh, about, you know, coalitions and counter coalitions. So how many people have testified against you and can I mobilize a counter coalition that is equal to all of those people plus at least one? And the judges often said, look, I mean, three or four people cannot be lying at the same time. So, uh, you know, if, if, if you were the defendant and I managed to mobilize, you know, three or four people and, and you had only two people to speak in your defense and I had three or four people who perhaps had, had concocted a story, you know, and, and ironed out any contradictions and, you know, problems, and they were kind of sticking to, to the same story. And, and, you know, the judges had little to go by other than the version provided by the, 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 <laughs> uh, the side that, were, that had more mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so it was as banal as that. And, and I, you know, the argument is that there, there was, you know, some, some observers said that what we had in the Gachacha courts was mass injustice. Mm. Um, but I argue having, you know, observed these, court, these cases up close and is that, you know, you can't say one way or the other. I mean, I think the best you can do is to say that there was always the potential for miscarriage of justice. But there's really no way, and the judges didn't know themselves, you know, that the coalitions that actually won the day, that prevailed in court, were coalitions that were telling the truth or were telling lies. There was simply no way hmm. to tell. And so the problem with the courts was not that they were necessarily, you can't dismiss them as kangaroo courts outright. They did a great deal of good. Um, and I, 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 you know, I go into that in some detail, um, that, you know, there was a, a, trials were actually places where people learned about what happened. Not everyone knew everything about what had happened, even in their own communities, because a lot of people just preferred to stay home because they knew horrible things were happening. And that if they, you know, ventured outside, they could be, you know, forcibly co-opted to join this squad or that that squad or that mm. group. And a lot of people preferred to stay home and, and didn't really know the full extent of what was happening. And so for the community, it was a learning experience as case after case came to trial and people presented their versions this way or that. And, you know, these things were up for debate as to, you know, who's telling the truth and, and people were contesting these things quite vigorously. Um, and, and you know, it's a, it's a pity at the end of the day that it was hard to tell because there was no hard evidence. But the fact was that, you know, every trial was a crucible where people learned about what happened and competing versions of events were presented and people had a chance to, you know, contest and challenge the facts and, 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 and present their version of events. And 
the judges, you know, at the end of the day, the judges decided one way or another, and that became the official record. Many times, you know, the accused were shamed by by the judges. Um, so, you know, they they would try to present um, versions that that minimize their role, and you know, when the the the, the narratives um, that were available clearly suggested that they had done more than they were saying, and and yet some of these people were asking for reduced sentences. They were appealing for, you know, uh, uh, clemency and so on. And the judges made it a point to shame them in public, and 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 that often reduced a lot of these people to to tears. I mean, they hmm. went down on their knees, and for the first time, they actually looked at uh, the victim's family eye to eye and begged for forgiveness and and. In some ways, these moments were quite cathartic. I mean, as as an outsider sitting in court, I could feel the release of tension hmm. in the courtroom. I could feel the relief when both sides could shake hands and 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 promise, you know, and one side promised to make amends to the best of their ability. You know, for example, to volunteer their their services when it came harvest time, or to volunteer to rebuild this person's home. And, and, and so on, or to be there for that person if any need arose. And so these were quite cathartic moments where people learned and shared and experienced collective relief and reflected together. And so, you know, I, I think it would be quite short-sighted to dismiss these courts as, as, as you know, Canada courts outright or mass injustice. The, the problem is that, you know, the, the question mark will remain forever as to how many how many convictions were true and how many convictions were false? Yeah. Um, my feeling is that, given the fact that, given the fact that the process depended on denunciations and that there were so many accusations, I think most people who were guilty eventually were, hmm. you know, caught up in the webs of the Gachacha courts and found guilty. But there were also a significant number of innocents who were caught up. So I, I think what can be said at the end of the day is not that is that very many guilty did not likely get away. The process actually did ensnare mm-hmm. most of the people who were guilty. Um, but the process also ensnared some people who were innocent. And I think there is no, we don't have in the absence of better data, you know, we don't really know what that number is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back to the judges for a minute. So, so who are these judges, and and why did they choose? So, so the majority of people in Rwanda are Hutu. Presumably, yes. most yes. of the judges are also Hutu, which means that at the end of these courts, they're going to have to go back to this community, or and and be in this community throughout the process. Why would why would a judge decide they wanted to be a judge? That was the puzzle, right? And uh, you know, particularly when you think uh, when you when you know that. Um, these positions were not remunerated. There were there were no mm. salaries to be paid to these judges. So why were all these people volunteering to undertake this hard work? And it was physically hard because um, you know they were working two three days a week, pretty much day to night, filling up dossier after dossier, working from you know morning well until you know it was dusk and it was difficult to see. Um, the opportunity costs were significant. Uh, because they were mostly peasants, so that meant you know these two mm. three days that they were working on these cases, they were not farming, um, and um, they complained all the time about being hungry, about being tired. Um, in in most cases, in most 
in at, at the at the cell level courts which is basically the grassroots you know, absolutely the 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 courts at the grassroots level um there was you know they didn't meet in um in 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 formal in in rooms so they were mm. pretty much literally sitting on the grass sitting outside the um, uh, outside the government office local government office if there was a formal building for the local office hmm. uh, we are talking mid 2000s at that time most sectors um, uh, did not have a formal building uh, or a designated building that was the space where government local government work would be done um and, and and so you know if it rained they had to scramble collect their papers and the end of the day's work if, if it was you know if there was a blinding sun they just withstood that and kept writing mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 you know they complained of hunger their stomachs growling so you know it was really a puzzle why why they chose to do this work and the survey there uh helped a good bit mm-hmm. and I, i i saw that um, i noticed that a lot of them were already they had these prominent positions in local associations and you know in in churches in local cooperatives in uh credit and savings associations and so on um significant numbers had important positions in these associations so there were presidents and treasurers and secretaries and um um uh, uh and, and so on um and 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 that set me th- and and they had held these positions for a while um these predated uh uh, uh the gachacha courts and mm. so you know clearly here was a non official a social elite as it were mm-hmm. um nicely positioned to take advantage of these positions that opened up and these were elected positions so you know the argument was that you know they had they had leverage over their communities because they were already you know in in positions of power and enjoyed some influence um and and they could win elections um i noticed also through ethnographic work that many of them many of the 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 the, the leading members of these courts were related to the leading perpetrators in those areas so oh. <laughs> um through extended family ties it was not always mm-hmm. you know a very close relative but they were they you know there were extended family ties um and you know through ethnographic work looking through family lines looking at how you know different units or different branches of the family lived and and who had problems with who it seemed to me that you know this was you know the one of the incentives was that when this layer was essentially removed from circulation once the 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 punishment policy was put into effect and the accusations started piling up and a lot of these people were accused and and sent to prison awaiting trial um you know one of the incentives was that their kin their family members would mm. if they could capture these courts or capture the leading positions on the courts could try to come up with verdicts in their favor and maybe not wipe their dossiers clean but at least you know give them you know the 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 you know as as beneficial a verdict as as was possible um 
my observation again the data suggests that they were not interested in doing this for everybody who passed through their course mm. but their their main goal was to was to look after the interests of you know people they knew people they were related with people they had an interest in saving um, for the rest of the caseload they could be quite impartial actually not mm. that one of the criticisms of the course was that you know can hutu really be impartial when it came to the cases of thousands of other hutu and the answer is yes if they were not related or they had no prior links mm. they could be they had no immediate interest in that case um and often they did not know the hundreds of people who passed through their courts they did not you know know them or had any prior knowledge of their cases so in that sense they were literally they 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 approached these cases with with impartiality with the sense of neutrality and the only thing they went by the only thing they could realistically realistically go by was really sort of the balance of coalition and counter coalition mm-hmm. um but so so um one of the the third reason that i i i found when i was looking at their political profiles was that large numbers of them had were formerly members of the rpf hmm. and almost 15% which is a relatively small number had actually moved into prominent party positions at the hmm. uh, grassroots level uh so they were vice chairman of the cell and you know um campaign managers of the rpf at the local level and and various hmm. other positions not insignificant positions that they occupied the other interesting thing was also that many of them had simultaneously or perhaps before they were they had they applied for judgeships or were elected to judgeships they held local government positions so they were local administrative officials at the grassroots so here was when you put all of these things together you there was a clear pattern of a local elite with access to social sources of power separate from you know any any authority they are deriving from government or not, or from the rpf and and that sort of ready and waiting and when the elections for judgeships open up they have an impersonal stake uh, in 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 these courts the courts also give them an opportunity to, to exercise good a good amount of power over the local population they had the power to authorize detention they had the power to release someone even if on a temporary basis they had the power to to uh, put a hold on people's property if they thought that you know this person would flee and 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 not um follow through on the uh, uh, um uh, on the reparations uh part of the sentence um so they had a good bit of you know significant powers that they enjoyed then and it gave them it it gave them it it gave them power over their communities it gave mm-hmm. them access to positions that they could use to to benefit their friends and close family members they used these positions to move into grassroots administrative jobs or they used pre-existing the grassroots administrative jobs to move into these judgeships mm. so they were busily establishing themselves as the <laughs> grassroots apparatus of a Tutsi dominated state Sorry. so let me ask them go ahead Kelly. yeah if 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 in fact they're busily establishing and they're able to carve out a space to protect certain 
relatives, as you say, maybe not near relatives, but far relatives or friends. Yeah. What is the what does the government get out of this? I mean, clearly they do get convictions and they do get to work through this, but they are giving the judges a certain amount of autonomy. What what, what do the judges get or the government get out of this? Um, the, my argument is that a Tutsi-dominated state basically secures for itself uh, a Hutu, a, 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 an apparatus, a grassroots apparatus of through which they govern, mm. um, and that essentially, you know, helped them to run the tribunals and establish themselves as a, you know, a, a regime that's interested in justice and reconciliation and that enjoys the it enjoys legitimacy and consent of the population, although you know it may be quite far from the truth. But you know, if you look at the numbers of people that participated and made a success in terms of you know just bringing these courts to completion, processing this massive caseload, you know the large numbers of convictions, and by that those and and at a very reasonable cost, I think forty forty million dollars for hmm. ten years of work where. The ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal, uh, absorbed almost $3 million a year hmm. that it worked. So, you know, on the backs of unpaid judges. And, and, and so, and, 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 and when you think of, when you look at the fact that these, although, you know, these tribunals are over and the judgeships were ad hoc positions, the fact that so many judges were moving into the more permanent government, government jobs and RPF, uh, party positions at the local level shows how a, a, a group that was once the enemy combatant, mm -hmm. the RPF, not so long ago was an enemy combatant. They came into power through their military victory, not through negotiations. The negotiations were, you know, uh, were not a great success uh, through military victory and had very few social networks or knowledge about the grassroots population to start off with, ends up at the end of the gachacha process with, with a grassroots apparatus of rule that not only helped to make a success of the trials, which everyone thought, you know, observers call this a, a fantasy. At the mm -hmm. time that the government said that we are going to do this, there were observers who called this, you know, a, a, a fantasy, a, 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 a crazy ambition that would never see, uh, that would never be fulfilled. Um, and yet, you know, by, by 2012, these courts had wrapped up uh, at minimal cost, and the government ended up with an apparatus of rule at the local level that was staffed by Hutu. And while, you know, it is questionable whether Hutu think that the RPF has the moral authority to rule, and one of the big things here is that, you know, the RPF, dominated government has not made an equally strenuous or comprehensive effort to investigate war crimes against mm. Hutu. Uh, mm -hmm. That's one of the big, you know, uh, things, you know, it, that didn't seem to matter. That didn't mm. seem to stop people from complying, from participating, from consenting, uh, from responding to various kinds of incentives, both you know, explicit, as in the guilty plea bargain, or implicit, which is, you know, we'll look the other way. Uh, we are not going to interfere in the daily workings of the court as long as you can manage the court without, you know, creating, you know, massive amounts of discontent at the local level that might spill over into, you know, local disturbances and local clashes. As long as you can manage the court process orderly and 
um, uh, you know, um, prevent a local outbreaks of violence, do it speedily, and and produce more convictions than acquittals. There is no yeah. reason to micromanage the court process. Mm. And, uh, you know, as we see from the judges' data, both from the survey and the ethnography, um, uh, that there were people in, in large numbers, almost a quarter million judges, who responded to that call and, and participated and, 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 you know, did that job without any direct or formal compensation, you know, what you hmm. think of in a routine salary or, you know, a, a formal office space. Uh, there were no formal uh, remuneration involved. So, but there were other perks, other benefits, and and this layer was ready and waiting and 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 responded to the government. Hmm. Well, well, there's way more in this book than than we've had time to get to. But but I I know that we our time is growing short. So I, so I would encourage listeners to go out and and look at this. This is a really good book. Um, and, and, and I learned a tremendous amount from it. So I always end the, the interviews by, by asking uh, the same couple of questions. Uh, and so Anu, I guess the first thing I would ask you is, um, what should I read this weekend? What are, or, or maybe watch? What's a book or two or a movie that you found meaningful to you or important to you as you were doing this research or thinking about this topic? I, you know, I, I browsed through a lot of different literatures. Mm. You know, there's a vast literature on transitional justice, there's a literature on clientelism, there's a literature on micro-level work on genocide. Um, mm. Two or three books in particular influence the way I thought about, I thought about the, you know, how, I, 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 I thought about the calculations and attitudes of, of uh, individuals. Um, mm -hmm. I was influenced particularly by Scott Strauss's work. Uh -huh. It's his 2006 book um, titled The Order of Genocide, where he, he, he un does these surveys on individual attitudes, finds no evidence for eliminationist uh, anti-Tutsi attitudes. And yet, you know, he finds that there were, there were stereotypes about, you know, what Tutsi as a group... Um, stood for, you know, that they were, that, that in particular, you know, Tutsi elites, that they were power hungry, or they were, they looked for power, and, you know, they were basically untrustworthy. So there was evidence of stereotypes about the group as a whole, even though, even though that did not necessarily translate into a, you know, a commitment to kill every single Tutsi. Mm -hmm. and, and that complexity, you know, that nuance was very important as I, I undertook my interviews, um, and I, I, I found confirmatory evidence of that because, and here I might suggest this, this other uh, film, it's called, it's a documentary, it's called As We Forgive. There's so much work on clientelism, um, Beatrice Magaloni's work on uh, punishment regimes, and she was basically looking at how uh, one-party dominant authoritarian regimes survive, and her case study was Mexico. And mm. uh, her main argument was, you know, she came up with this term, a punishment regime, but she was not looking at criminal justice. She was looking at how a hegemonic party buys the loyalty, buys electoral votes by denying them fiscal transfers and granting them fiscal transfers or denying them as the case may be. 
uh, and so you know that work influenced me to a great deal as I, I I pulled up that idea of punishment regime and applied it to the Rwandan case where it was literally the RPF dominated government yeah. was was uh, was uh, had implemented a punishment regime. In this case, the incentives were not fiscal transfers; they were you know reduced sentences. They were opportunities hmm. for various kinds of private gain. Um, and, and so on. Um, and, and so Beatrice Magaloni's work on uh, clientelism and the punishment regime um, also influenced my thinking to a great deal. So if I, if I, you know, I mean, amongst a lot of other important, but if I had to mention just two, I think, you know, these two might be good books to look at. So you finished this project, and as you and I were talking about earlier, um, you're deepened in another semester, but but I've never met an academic that didn't have another project in mind, even if it's not started. Yeah. <laughs> what what what's your next project? Um, I'm in the very early stages of two different projects. One mm. I want to mention here, um, it is building on this idea of infrastructural power, and it is an idea that Michael Mann, who's a sociologist, um, mm -hmm. proposed, and the idea is how um, states manage to implement policies with the consent and cooperation of societies uh, or the populations living mm. in those states. And you know, the, the manner in which you know, state elites or ruling elites may not start out with real sources of social power, but they're able to drop anchor and, and into uh, you know, various sources of social power, be they you know, ethnic groups, leader, leaders of ethnic groups or um, uh, you know, uh, religious leaders and so on. And, and they are able to build formidable states by dropping anchor deep into social sources of power. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring two different literatures together, the literature on state building and post-conflict reconstruction. Mm -hmm and the existing work on infrastructural power. And I'm trying to see to what extent, you know, what the gaps are in the, the classic works on, on state building and post-conflict hmm. reconstruction, and if the literature on building infrastructural power has, you know, some answers there. So hmm. it's, it's more sort of, sort of, again, I'm sort of, um, Michael Mann said in an interview that he pillaged through various literature <laughs> looking for insights. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pillaging as it were, mm. um, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that project is, you know, in the very initial stages, you know, it involves vast amounts of reading, but I think there may be something there. Uh, there may be something practical there in terms of, you know, how we apply insights from say historical studies or insights from, um, comparative historical sociology um, and, and sort of apply this idea of infrastructural power to, hmm. you know, the ways in which we try to build states and, you know, why those efforts succeed in some cases and why they don't. Well, I hope you enjoy your pillaging <laughs> in the middle of grading exams and, and preparing lectures or discussions or something. I've taken a lot of your time, so we should wrap it up, but I want to say thank you so much for being with us. Um, I learned a lot, as I said, from the book, and I enjoyed talking about it with you greatly. Um, and I hope whenever you're done with your next project, you'll come back on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Kelly. I enjoyed the talk. 
You've been listening to an interview with Anu Chakravarti about her new book, Investing in Authoritarian Rule, Punishment and Patronage in Rwanda's Gachacha Courts for Genocide Crimes, published by Cambridge University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll interview Michael Bryant about his book, A World History of War Crimes. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month. Thank you.